You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 29th of October 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Monocle's House View with Emma Nelson. Coming up on today's programme... Everybody wants to model every possible result of every decision, sometimes rather than just taking the decision that might be morally right. You know, they're very concerned with what impact all of these things might have. Uncertainty rules the UK's seat of power. We ask whether reliable political predictions are a thing of the past. My guests, Marie Leconte and Alex von Tunzelman, will talk about that in the day's other news, including as Turkey's Syria policy casts a shadow over NATO, what should international bodies do with wayward members? And the Vatican's secret library, secret no longer. Plus... Ramelow's success suggests that centrism is not dead. It's more the case that voters' support is fluid. The electorate will back a party that has credible leaders who are able to govern and, crucially, to compromise. German centrism seems to be on the rocks. Is it really? I'm Emma Nelson. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined today by the historian, author and screenwriter Alex von Tunzelman and the political journalist and author Marie Leconte. Well, exhaustion has set in here at London, where the British Parliament has another go at deciding whether to have a general election. It's our fourth attempt, I think, so please bear with us, although the suggestion is that it will get the go-ahead. There are plenty of reasons why we're all on our knees. It's not just the interminable struggle of Brexit. It's because many of us have stopped understanding what's happening, and also because so much trust has been eroded, not just in politicians, but also in punditry and predictions. So what is gone wrong and where do we go next? Um, Who wants to begin on this? I think we must acknowledge the fact that it looks like the United Kingdom may be heading for a general election just around the time that we start doing our Christmas shopping. Is that right? Marie, do you want to start this off? Um, Yes, no, it is absolutely right because uh, Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn announced this morning that Labour would be backing uh, the next vote on an election and obviously the Tories are going to vote for it and the SNP and the Lib Dems have said for quite a while now that they'd be ready to back it as well. So this is definitely going to happen. So probably on December the 12th or the 11th, we're not sure yet, I think. Um, But but no, it's happening. I'm not I'm not thrilled by it, but there's no point in denying it. No, we actually, it's a very good point. There's no point in denying that we're going into another um, tumultuous few few months and weeks. Um, Alex, we're now entering an election period. So with that election period, we must brace ourselves for a deluge of punditry and prediction. Yes, indeed. I mean, everybody sort of wants to try and predict the results of this election because it's so consequential. Um, and what we've Kind of, you know, we've been talking about how um, how kind of predictions have now become a sort of industry, really. Um, it feels kind of like uh, everybody wants to model every possible result of every decision sometimes rather than just taking the decision that might be morally right. You know, they're very concerned with what impact all of these, uh, all of these things might have. Um, but it's very difficult with the UK election as well because, I mean, in most of the pollsters, people like YouGov, you know, they poll regionally. But, of course, because it's a first-past-the-post system, it actually matters at a constituency level and there can be huge differences between even neighbouring constituencies. Right. And in the middle of all these pundits, how much faith do we actually have in them anymore, Marie? You've, you've written extensively on, on gossip within Parliament. Um, is that effectively all it is now? I mean, it kind of is, and I think there's a 
bunch of different reasons for that. But I do think that political journalism, especially at the moment in the kind of Brexit era, has just turned into, you know, well, breaking or scoop, you know, this is what's going to happen in two hours, effectively. You know, this amendment to this bill may go through the Commons and may be put forward, or X person may vote for Y, etc. Um, which is, I mean, which I, I find quite odd, uh, but also I think creates this sort of world where, A, it seems like the news never, ever stops, even though, you know, it, it can be the case quite often that nothing will have happened actually between morning and evening. But if you look at Twitter, and especially the Twitter of uh, political journalists, it looks like, you know, one million things are on the cusp of happening. And so, but, but, but I think that, you know, that creates an environment as well where people get a very short memory. So it is possible for these journalists to do this because if they call it right, then they get to be smug effectively in front of their colleagues and their peers. And if they call it wrong, everyone will have forgotten within about five minutes because we have to move on to the next thing that may be on the cusp of happening. So I think that, that there is a problem of trust, but also the problem is that within the bubble, I mean, it seemingly nearly doesn't matter anymore whether you call things right or not, because things move so quickly. So accuracy has gone. But arguably, Alex, one could say that Marie just uh, just mentioned the idea of you, nothing could happen all day, but we could all be under the impression that a million things could be happening. I wonder whether we now actually live in a world, a political world here in the United Kingdom, where a million things actually genuinely could happen because things are going so fast. And the way that punditry has spun into a, into a crazy vortex, it's just as a consequence, just reflecting what's really happening behind closed doors in, in politics. Well, it does seem that this is a saga that's just taken so many ridiculous twists and turns. Um, I mean, you know, uh, and even to the point where it sort of becomes kind of, you know, details whip past so fast that you barely have time to absorb them. I mean, yesterday we were all having a laugh over the extraordinary metaphor that uh, all these sort of commemorative 50 pence coins that said Brexit on 31st of October were all having to be melted down. Like this extraordinary <laughs> metaphor for the whole of Brexit as they literally melt money um, that was supposed to be a kind of, you know, triumphant statement. Um but I mean, you know, and then immediately, of course, we've all forgotten about that today because we're far too busy now thinking, oh, my goodness, election, election. I think there's a huge stress that this has on people. I don't doubt it has a huge stress on parliamentarians. But I think even ordinary people who are kind of reading Twitter, it probably has a bit of a toll on their mental health that this is kind of such a roller coaster the whole time. Um, can we trust any of these people, Marie? I mean... The key um, BBC and ITV political editors in the last few days have been accused of acting as merely as a mouthpiece for the insiders at number 10. So who do we go to to say, actually, this might be happening, sit down, listen, because here's some calm, cool fact? Well, actually, I mean, what I would say, and that might just be my intense fatigue speaking um, as opposed to my professional analysis, but I think less less has become more in terms of following the news. There's no point, I think, generally anymore in following political news minute by minute, because, again, most of the time people call things wrong. Or, as you said, you know, some anonymous source in number 10 can say, you know, well, actually, you know, can threaten to do something if Labour doesn't do another thing. And then that threat doesn't come to pass. So I genuinely think just actually going back to probably reading the papers and maybe watching the 10 o'clock news is a better way and a more constructive way to actually follow politics and understand what's going on. The grandma approach to news digestion, I think I'm going to christen that now because that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's what grandmas do. Uh, the old appointment to view. Alex, has there ever been a time, you're a historian, <laughs> has there ever been a time when the pundits were actually reliable, useful, I don't know what positive adjectives to describe them. I think there's always been an element of fortune telling um, and mysticism to this kind of job. Um, but I mean, of course, you know, uh, predictions are predictions, they can go right or wrong. And I mean, a lot of people also have this problem when they talk about 
for instance, the whole <laughs> school of economics, you know, that some of this kind of, you know, predictions are inherently unreliable. But that, of course, is because, you know, human life is unreliable. Um, I do think, you know, it, the fact is that if we stopped asking all these questions about how everything was going to go, then uh, we wouldn't have these industries. But everybody does want to know how things are going to go. There's an obsession with trying to know the future. And so here we all are. When are we going to get to the stage, Marie, that we're going to rely on a psychic octopus to <laughs> predict who's going to have a majority in the House of Commons, like we used to do for the Football World Cup, which it was an octopus that admittedly always got it right as well. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I think we, we could just start using it now, to be honest, because if you look, even the pollsters themselves have said that, you know, like we're going to have an election that obviously, you know, beyond uh, the circumstances we're in, that has that is basically a four-horse race because you have the Brexit party and the Lib Dems actually polling quite high on top of Labour and the Conservatives. And we have no idea how to problem, like, properly model for that. We have no idea how to predict accurately actually what's going to happen. So even looking at the polls now, I do not think that that's... I don't actually make predictions anymore, but the one prediction I'm happy to make is that whatever happens on December 12th or 11th, I think is not going to look anything like the polling we currently have. Excellent. Well, we should all look forward to that. So in in this morass of lots of people who have lots of things to say and no one's entirely sure who to listen to and what have you, what should we all be looking out for when we are trying to choose our favourite pundit or pollsters? Any ideas? Well, I mean, my policy, which has served me quite well since 2016, is to assume that we're listening, living in, you know, in the kind of multiverse theory where there could be infinite strands of universe, that we're living in the worst possible timeline, where whatever happens will definitely simple, be why don't you, the most awful outcome. And so far, I've been right on, you know, Trump's election, on the referendum, on, you know, on the 2017 election was also sort of, well, actually highly amusing, but inconclusive. But I mean, you know, I think, uh, I think sheer pessimism is my, is my <laughs> standpoint. Because the good thing is then you can only be pleasantly surprised. Okay, so you've become the political equivalent of Aunt Ada Doom. How about, <laughs> how about you, Marie? Uh, well, I was saying that actually maybe that's the grandma approach as well again. But um, I found that I don't really read um, people trying to predict stuff anymore. What I quite enjoy is more people analysing what's happened, which I know is a very old-fashioned idea and concept. But, but you know, I feel like the journalists who will, especially find, you know, kind of smaller bits if there's been a big day full of votes, etc., the journalists will stop and go, no, but hang on, you know, that thing that happened on the side, I think that's going to, you know, that's quite significant and this is why. I think the that, that's the coverage I kind of look out for more so than, you know, any in three hours, there may be a vote. Alex von Tunselman and Marie Leconte there. We'll be back in just a moment. But first, here's Monocle's Marcus Hippie with some of the other stories we're following today. Thanks, Emma. The UK looks set for a December general election. It follows an announcement from the Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn that his party was ready to fight the most radical campaign in its history. The Prime Minister Boris Johnson can only hold an election with the support of the country's opposition parties. Saudi Arabia's high-profile political and business event, which has been dubbed Davos in the Desert, is getting underway in Riyadh. Many leading companies stayed away from last year's gathering over the role that Saudi authorities played in the killing of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Hong Kong's leader Carrie Lam has said the city-state is likely to record negative growth for the year. The announcement follows months of protests that have disrupted the territory's businesses and tourism. It's thought that Hong Kong will announce it has entered a recession later this week. And today's Monocle Minute reports on LVMH's multi-billion dollar bid for the US jeweller Tiffany & Co. If the deal goes ahead as it loses 
looks likely to. Tiffany's would be the first US heritage brand in LVMH's portfolio and consolidate the firm's hold on the jewellery market. For more, head to monocle.com forward slash minute. Those are the headlines. Now back to you, Emma. Thanks, Marcus. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Emma Nelson, here in the studio with Marie Leconte and Alex von Tunzelman. Six out of ten Germans believe that Turkey's military offensive in northeast Syria is so abhorrent that the country should be thrown out of NATO. A survey by YouGov also said a similar number of Germans want sanctions to be imposed on the Turkish authorities. Sounds simple enough, but actually kicking a country out of NATO is easier said than done. Uh, Alex, let's begin with a little bit of context here. Historically, Germany has had a good relationship with Turkish people. I mean, one need only look at the number of so-called gastarbeiters who came to rescue the economy in the 1960s and we now have what two and a half million people of Turkish origin who live in Germany so where's everything gone wrong? Well, I mean, I'm sure it's not personal from from the Germans towards these uh, individual Turks um, who who do indeed have a very thriving and established uh, community in Germany. Um, I think, you know, what's going on here is much more to do with a kind of, I mean, in a sense, that could be informing it in in the way that actually Germany cares quite a lot about what happens in Turkey um, and and indeed in Syria. Uh, They also have taken a lot of refugees from Syria. Um, But, you know, it's more to do with a kind of, realigning it and re- questions about what NATO is and what its role is and perhaps Germany also trying to assert um, rather more of a role there um, which would be an interesting point because what we've seen kind of you know recently I mean NATO is you know venerable organisations of 70 years old now um, and there has been a fair amount of criticism of it that it's kind of a Cold War relic that it's you know what's the point of it anymore um, and then others replying to that well there's a lot of point to it because you've got sort of Russian aggression coming from the east and you know potentially the rise of China and all of this but of course you know leader of the critics here has been President Trump who um, of course has at some points threatened to withdraw from NATO altogether um, which would be deeply awkward for everyone concerned um, so really what's kind of interesting I think about uh, about this coming from Germany is whether we're going to see some kind of rebalancing um, of the power within that organisation. So let's have a look at how they might go about doing this, Marie. Um, we have the issue of the fact that you can leave NATO, but it's incredibly hard to be thrown out um, for the simple reason that there is no mechanism that NATO has for expulsion. You obviously have to have every single member, member state to agree, which I think we can all imagine isn't going to happen very quickly. Um, but what does that say about NATO? Oh, that's a good question. What I mean, I, I, I loathe to bring it back to the B word, um, but but it nearly reminds me of Brexit. You know, of kind of looking at these. No, but there's big, and, and that's kind of I think comes back to what Alex was saying. There's big sort of like supranational um, institutions that we created in decades past, um, and we're now kind of looking at them, and obviously there's sort of like a bunch of them. You know, people either trying to leave, getting kicked out. In the case of Turkey, and we're sort of sitting there going, oh, but you know, what what do we do now? What happens? Because Brexit as well, you know, clearly. Is a you know a terrible process. A nation state trying to leave the European Union is not is basically not quite impossible, but you know not exactly easy. So I do think that again, there's kind of like the world is changing in ways that we clearly did not predict when all of those um, all of those things were created. So I'm I'm not really sure what's going to happen next. To be honest, there was a hopeful element when NATO was brought together. That in, in, insofar as if you bring enough countries together, who on paper will not actually ever see eye to eye, put them in a room and they should be able to play ball together. Arguably, it's it's sort of held 
Um, yes. And, and yes. some may say that actually it's adapted as best as it can, given the, the, the things that history tend to throw at us all. How relevant is NATO now? Does it need to bend and change and be prepared to kick people out? I think a lot depends. I mean, and kicking people out is only one element of that, although... Um, Indeed, as you said, it would be quite hard to do. It's not even clear that it could be done. Perhaps suspension could be, as has happened in the Commonwealth. Um, but even that, I don't think there's a procedure for. Um, but there is a question of, yes, what's it for? What is it? You know, who who wants to run it? I mean, I think with NATO, there's a couple of big questions in the future, one of which, of course, is what happens in the US, whether President Trump gets another term, if he wants to actually follow through on this kind of threats to withdraw at the moment, he says he won't. Um, you know, and whether they want to keep honouring the big kind of central premise, Article 5 of NATO, which is that an attack on one is considered an attack on all. I mean, you know, I know that he, as an isolationist, he's not very interested in that as a general principle. Um, so, you know, what will happen in a second Trump term um, could be complicated. The other kind of push on that really is coming, in a sense, from the EU, which shares a lot of members with NATO. There's 29 members of NATO and, of course, 28, possibly soon, 27 of the EU. Um Although some don't overlap, you know, obviously Canada and the US um, and, and indeed Turkey, um, who are all NATO members, but not EU, um, Iceland and various other places as well. But it's a question then of whether the EU starts talking about having an army. Now, that's something that people like Giva Hofstadt have spoken about. It's something that's very controversial. Some people feel very strongly against. Some people feel very strongly pro. Um, if that happens, is that really a mirror organisation to NATO? And then is NATO sort of irrelevant. Is that the EU going, you know what, we're not going to put up with these Americans anymore? And we also have different nations pulling on, posing new problems, the idea that it's not just Donald Trump and the isolationist policy, but there are other countries, um, such as the Philippines and Mm. Brazil, where you have leaders who NATO can't really take a great grasp of, um, but they are causing fresh problems in a new world. I know, exactly. And I think exactly so Duterte in the Philippines and Bolsonaro um, in Brazil are really good examples of presidents who were elected and who, you know, it's I think the issue is fundamentally that places like NATO, etc. will have some red lines for very extreme cases. And it's not quite clear that both Bolsonaro and Duterte have reached them quite yet, but they are behaving extremely, extremely poorly. And it's not always very clear how, but even how individual nation states should uh, deal with them. Because I remember a few years ago, Liam Fox, when he was still International Trade Secretary, went to the Philippines and had this, you know, very cheerful, I think, picture taken with Duterte saying, you know, the future of trade between the UK and the Philippines and our shared values, etc, etc. And obviously, there was quite a lot of noise um, against that afterwards, saying, well, you know, what what are you doing? This is someone who's doing terrible things to his people. You see, China is a really good example as well of um, what's happening to the Muslims there, etc. So there's kind of I think like so many countries at the moment um, that do not seem like you know they're kind of playing fair in any sort of way and it's not quite clear how we're going to deal with them. Okay finally Dan Brown author of those rather explosive but preposterous novels about the hunt for the Holy Grail must be beside himself with excitement because the Vatican has announced that its secret archive will no longer be secret in an attempt to lift any negative connotations but will it actually change anything? Um, Alex this is a change in name only is that right? Well, at the moment, although, I mean, to be fair, I do think the current Pope is a bit of a reformer. But yes, I mean, you know, the secret archives, so these date back probably to about the early 17th century. It's thought there's an awful lot of them. Um, These are papers on the popes and the dealings of the popes. And they apparently occupy 85 kilometres of shelf space. And that is huge. And they're in an underground bunker. 
under the Vatican. I can, so. I can see the film being so, made now by oh, Dan I'm, Brown. I mean, I'm just giving him material now. Um, and I think, you know, they sort of, I mean, the name, of course, Archivum Secretum, I mean, put it in Latin and it's immediately frightening, of course. Um, but, you know, it would be good to open it up. I mean, of course, there would be lots of incredibly interesting information in there for historians and researchers, that some of which really won't have been seen before. Yes, this is, this is uh, this came through a decree which also has one of those lovely scary Italian and a uh, Lost in Latin names and motu proprio. Um, it's a name change, isn't it, Marie? It's not actually a lifting of any secret rules. It's just saying, hi, we have a secret archive. We're just not going to say it's secret anymore. It's just an archive. I mean, <laughs> why on <laughs> You can quickly see through that thought, can't you? Yeah, no, I agree. And also, I found it quite odd because, if anything, it's just drawing attention to it because I did not know that archive existed in the first place. So I'm now like, hang on. So is it? Is there a secret archive? I mean, How secret is it? Secret. <laughs> <laughs> so now I want to go see it. So yeah, what? Why? Why sort of come out seemingly out of nowhere and say this? I mean, the cynical journalist in me things that maybe something was about to come out with it. So they had to come out first, British politics style, and say, hey, our normal archive. Um. <laughs> so who's, so who is, what's going to happen now then? Does this mean we will get access of great revelations because of this fresh interest that, as Maria's men, men, mentioned, we, we might now know something about this thing? Um, or are we just going to get an awful lot more of bad novels of people running up and down corridors with candles that could just set fire to the whole thing in a second. <laughs> yes, don't have a candle in an archive. That, that is a fundamental rule. Um, I suspect the bad novels. I don't think, I think, although, you know, as I say, I do think the current Pope is obviously kind of has a somewhat reformist bent, but I also, you know, change is very, very slow in a place like the Vatican. You know, as I say, these, these this is a place still using Latin names. And I think it was actually very recently, really, that they started dealing with their index Librorum Prohibitorum, their, their list of banned books. You That's know, a very waggy finger name, isn't it? It isn't it? Absolutely <laughs> prohibitorum. No, no looking at these. And so, you know, this is kind of an organisation that really is still very authoritarian, very, very vested in its history. Um, I don't think it's going to suddenly fling the doors open and let us all screaming, run in, look for exciting Pope gossip. It has got me thinking that perhaps in a less than six months we will see a new London bar opening called the Prohibitorum. Prohibitorum. So <laughs> if you wanted to rename something, Marie, in a sort of slightly cleansing way, which is what the Vatican is doing for its non-secret secret archives, what, what would you change that you think might, might actually benefit from a little rebrand? Oh, that's a good question. I'm not sure that I'm always fascinated by the Cobra meetings in number 10, which sounds so, you know, kind of shady when actually it is committee room B, I think, uh, the acronym Cobra. Cabra, cabinet office briefing room yeah, yes, a. that's the one. Which, no, you know, it's such a, a silly kind of you know, Cobra meeting. So I'm not sure. I think I'd rather go the other way. I think more like see more mostly mundane things should have vaguely threatening names. Okay. <laughs> well, um, I, would you need a minute to think about? Yes. You know, bringing <laughs> yes, bringing menace to, to a sort of suburban bathroom or something. How about you, Alex? Well, what, would, uh, what would you like to rename either uh, to make more or indeed less menacing? <laughs> well, I'm thinking this just makes me think I'm afraid of George Orwell and the you know ministries of truth, love, peace and plenty, which all of course, in 1984, deal with the exact opposite uh, to their names. Um, so, I mean, we've sort of seen that actually happening a bit. You know, that Orwellian prediction about those ministries has happened a bit in government. The things like the Department of War are now called, you know, Department of Defence. You know, subtle change, but isn't that so much nicer than war? It sounds much less aggressive, you know. Uh, it's just defence. So, I suppose... Um, yeah, I mean, they could take this much further, you know. I mean, they could go full or well. I expect to see an entire government of love 
<laughs> and and cooperation and forward thinking come up very soon, Soviet style. OK, government of love. If anybody's listening who's in the House of Commons, could you please just adopt a little bit of that for the next <laughs> few weeks? We're a little tired here. Uh, Marie, have you have you thought of anywhere that you want to either, you want to titivate in terms of names? Well, actually, because I was thinking in the House of Lords, there's a, there's a room which is, you know, perfectly normal. It's called the Princess Chamber, which sounds very ominous. So I quite like that. So I quite like the idea of sort of like council buildings having, you know, princess chambers. Or like, yeah, I, I like the word chamber. What I happens think, in a ch- prince's chamber? I, nothing. It is generally just a room that you that, that exists in the House of Lords. Nothing happens there, but for some reason it's called that. What would so you think, like to have or what can we imagine that might happen in a prince's chamber? It's either the d- detainment of small boys or something where something quite <laughs> fun happens. I don't know. I feel like... It's probably just Lord Mandelson being there. Like I can just see Peter Mandelson being in the Prince's yeah. Chamber. Prince of Darkness Chamber. Yeah. I think you know, they need to up the game a bit. I think, you know, could we not also have a demon's chamber, a warrior's yeah, chamber, exactly. you know, dragon's chamber? I mean, come on, let's at least <laughs> let's you know if if we're kind of Britain sort of trading so much as a tourist destination on its history, I think we should camp this up a bit more, actually. I completely agree. Alex von Tunselman and Marie Leconte, thank you very much indeed for joining us. In a moment, centrism in Germany, down but not quite out. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. If you've just joined us, welcome to Monocle's House View. I'm Emma Nelson. And finally today, Monocle's affairs editor, Chris Chermak, tells us now about a German example of why centrism in politics is far from dead. It seems everywhere you look these days, there's a story about the rise of the far right. The latest example is Germany's eastern state of Thuringia, where over the weekend, a hopelessly divided electorate delivered a result that will tie regional politicians up in coalition negotiations for weeks. Top billing went to the post-communist party of the left, but second place went to the far-right alternative for Germany, which more than doubled its support. Meanwhile, Germany's better-known centrist parties are licking their wounds. And yet, while much of the media has focused on the death of the center and worrying surge of the AFD, you should look elsewhere for a more intriguing lesson about what's happened. Germany's left party has long been on the fringes of national politics, but its success in Thuringia, this is the second time in five years that it has claimed the top spot, is not because the state has lurched to the left. In fact, Thuringia's state premier, Bodo Ramelow, has won about a third of the electorate by moving his party to the center. He's done so by showing that the left is ready to govern maturely, not by pandering to the electorate's fears. Ramelow's success suggests that centrism is not dead. It's more the case that voters' support is fluid. The electorate will back a party that has credible leaders who are able to govern and, crucially, to compromise. Perhaps that, rather than the creeping rise of the far right, could serve as the hopeful lesson behind this latest election result. And that was a view from Monocle's editorial floor. And that's all we have time for today's programme. Monocle's House View was produced by Augustin Machilari and researched by Yolene Goffin and Naomi Potter. Our studio managers were Steph Chungu and David Stevens. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of Monocle on Design. And Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow. That's 1800 London time. For now, though, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>